From the makers of the Beyond series, introducing The Chelsea and Eric Show, bringing you more extraordinary stories from the world of triathlon. I'm Chelsea Sodaro, and you know, I still see myself as pretty new to the sport. I'm super curious, and I want to learn from the best. And I am Eric Gilsonen. You know, everyone is a triathlete, they just don't know it yet. Who is your hero in the sport of triathlon? The finish line, whether you're the first finisher or the final finisher, is where all people come together. We're all out there together. That's what I live for. This, this is the Chelsea is and the Eric Show. Welcome back to the Chelsea and Eric show. We are so excited to welcome you back to this really special episode that we have planned. Eric, tell us what you've got. Uh, do we have a living legend? Uh, not many of them left. Uh, but yeah, Scott Tinley, one of the big four. ST uh, spent an hour with me and uh, we uh, went over a lot of great stuff. It was a great conversation. From the origin of the sports to where it's at today. And uh, yeah, maybe a little reminiscing. That is so exciting to hear. I haven't personally met Scott, but I've heard stories. And my parents actually raced in the Bud Light series back in the late 80s, early 90s, I believe, and crossed paths with him. So yeah, I've heard about I've heard about the legend. And now Dr. Scott Tinley spends his days writing and teaching at San Diego State. Mm-hmm. And even though he's retired from triathlon, it sounds like he's very much following the sport and thinking about how the sport affects the human condition. He's a seventh generation Californian, two-time Ironman champion, and the Ironman Hall of Famer legend, Scott Tinley. So thanks for having me on the show, man. Let's let's jump into it. What, what what are you thinking these days? This is great, and thank you for your time. You've written "I Love Kona," and I never loved it more than when I fell in love all over again last October 2010. Except perhaps when I first fell in love with it in 1981, my first time, naive and unexpected third place. It remains the purest moment in my 30-year career, utterly irreplaceable. Tell us about that experience first time in Kona, the first time you fell in love with Kona, and what made it so pure back in 81 in those first forming years of our sport. Well, I, I'm not so sure I would have, I would have taken that um, uh, cerebral, even spiritual approach back in 81 when I was, I was hoping to uh, you know, find enough aluminum cans to, to rent a taxi to get my wife and I back to the airport after our third place finish. But... Um, you know, in, in hindsight, um, I think it had more to do with that it, it felt closer to the concept of play, you know, than, than even games or what we now call institutionalized sport. You know, and play is something that, um, you know, it exists only for the sake of itself. It, you know, there's no desired outcome. There's no rules. There's no structure. And for me to go over there in 81 with no expectations, uh, on a shoestring budget, with my young wife, 
uh, recently married, a new job, and just to kind of experience this thing I had heard about. Um, and, 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 oh, by the way, you did okay performatively. Everything lined up. You know, it's unexpected performance results, uh, a beautiful island, met some amazing people. Um, you know, and, and when I talk about Kona, it's, you know, more so it's about not only my own historicity with the event, but the city, the town, the region, West Hawaii, um, the many people that I've met, um, along with you know, the Ironman as a specific triathlon. So I guess to answer your question, it, it just, I just, I felt like a kid in the sandbox, you know, and, and, and suddenly I was, I was sharing these toys and we were getting along and I was learning how to play. And somebody handed me a really cool little truck and, and, and I made a fort and then it was time to go home. And, and my dad said, you know, how'd your day go? You know, I said, wow, it's amazing, dad. Awesome. Well said. And then you went back in 2010, you know, you stepped away for a bit in triathlon, but then you went back in 2010 and you fell in love with it again. And some of your fellow big four had stuff to do with that uh, second love affair in 2010. Talk about that and that swim you went out uh, in uh, the Kailua Bay on the sat on the early morning, like all the rest of us do in a dip. But you went out to the coffee boat and you bumped into the Terminator. Uh, talk about that and what it was like to have the greatness of Molina and the humility of Molina all in one vessel handing you warm coffee. Well, I, I, I think to answer that question correctly, you know, a little, a little background is, is necessary. Uh, when, I, when I left Ironman and, and I no longer was competing after 1999 and there was only a handful of events that I would participate in, emphasis on participate, not race. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I kind of had to divorce myself from everything that triathlon had been for me and to me. And I felt like, you know, it, it had overdefined me in so many ways for half of my waking years. And so for me to succeed in other arenas, I couldn't look at myself as, you know, a former triathlete or a former two-time Ironman champion or member of the big four, any of that, you know, the sort of identifying um, cliches that multi-sport media had developed over the years. So, so I didn't want to think about triathlon for, for 10 years. I, you know, and particularly, I didn't want to go back to Hawaii. I knew that my role would be difficult until I was okay with where I was in my new skin, if that makes any sense. And that took a long time. You know, I, I, was, I was in graduate school for, for 12 years. You know, once I finally felt like I was okay with, with what sport had been to me then and, and what Ironman um, was, um, then I was, I was good to go back to Kona, to watch it, to celebrate these amazing champions of the current period. Um, and, and also to, to reconnect with, you know, people like Scott Molina and, you know, and a lot of the friends I have who live in Kailua and, and Kona, um, you know, on, on a kind of different level. Like, okay, you know, we had a good run. It was a great time. We accomplished a lot of things. Um, but that was then. This is now. So that transformation, you know, call it <laughs> acceptance, call it love. Um, it, it, that took a while. How did you start in triathlon? You know, you got third in 81, as we've been talking about. And uh, earlier in that year, you did a race uh, 
And that was Julie Moss's only triathlon prior to her February 82 race. And that was uh, at low tide, the Del Mar days. Uh, tell us about that early race. And uh, what was your first triathlon like when you were a lifeguard? Well, so <clears throat> I raced in that event in 81. Um, I was living in um, Ocean Beach. <clears throat> I had been down in you know in the San Diego area since the mid seventies when when I um, you know came down here to go to college. Went to San Diego State. <clears throat> Never left. <laughs> it's like I told someone the other day, man, I, dude, I went on spring break forty years ago and I never came back. <laughs> Anyways, um, so, so my first triathlon was in August of seventy six, and it was the Mission Bay Triathlon. Um, you know, and we've all heard the stories there that, you know, it's kind of a ragtag group of lifeguards, Navy SEALs, bar keeps, you know, off duty waiters, uh, you know, exercise physiologists and people who just happened to, to want to try something different than running, which was all the rage back in the mid seventies, you know, it was right after, Frank Shorter had won the Olympic marathon in, Mon in uh, uh, Munich in 72. And, and the popularity of jogging right, just continued to escalate uh, for almost a decade. <clears throat> and so to, you know, to, to discover this multi-sport thing uh, quite by accident the summer before. And then, uh, you know, while I was on vacation visiting my sister in 75 and then moved back down there in 76, to see this event, and then again, back then there was only one or two events every year anywhere on the planet, based unless you know, unless someone else can come forth and say, "Oh yeah, we had a race in, you know, in in Slo Slovakia back then." No, actually, it wasn't a race in Slovakia because it didn't exist, you know, back in '71. But any, anyways, um, it was uh, it was very much a um, uh, experimental type of, of afternoon, you know, a Wednesday night at five o'clock, as the lore has it, which is true. Um, and I think, I think I finished third, right. Um, and, you know, and just the excitement of, of actually achieving something in the world of sports, you know, cause I'd always been a, just a, you know, a very average to below average athlete during my, uh, my grade school and high school years. And had had this you know, secret desire to prove myself in the world of athleticism, but, but never had the outlet. So even though Triathlon wasn't really, you know, a, a developed sport at the time. You know, it was more of a, of a subculture collection of individuals who were gathering once or twice a year on the boggy shores of Fiesta Island in San Diego. Um, it was exciting for me. Um, and then, you know, after finishing, I was looking around at all these San Diego track club guys. Going, all right, when, when's the next race? When's the next race? You know, is it next weekend? And, you know, is it September 1st? And they go like, dude, you know, hold your horses, man. We don't even know if this thing will ever happen again let alone this year. <laughs> so it was a bit of a buzzkill, but it did, fortunately. And there was, you know, three events in 77 and three and a half in 78. And, you know, there we go. How would you describe yourself back then uh, in the mid 70s and 80s? Uh, you know, you had the lifeguard lifestyle and the surfing style. So you had the blonde hair, the mustache, the thousand watt smile and personality, um, the mustache that a lot of other triathletes, uh, you know, resembled. Uh, what was uh, it like back then? What was going on in your mind? And uh, did you think the sport would grow? And did you think you would be able to be who you are today with the sport back then? Um, I mean, I guess the shorter answer is yes and no. Um, 
there, there were no indications that triathlon would develop a professional tour or any kind of commercial for-profit uh, possibilities. That didn't happen until 81, 82. And so those of us who were, we were somewhat enamored by this emerging alternative event or events, right? If you could say there's more than one a year, uh, you know, we, we were more inclined to think that it was reflective of a kind of way of living, uh, you know, having that beach lifestyle. Um, you know, I mean, you're, you didn't think about basketball, baseball, football, hockey, soccer. You know, you thought about the tide and the wind conditions and, uh, you know, who, who has a, a, a good paddleboard I could borrow for the race on Sunday? You know, it was all about the water and the wind and the waves. And the bike was a necessary component because, um, again, you know, because a lot of us couldn't afford cars and we didn't want to deal with beach parking. So, you know, we just commuted on bikes, whether it's going to school or going to the bars at night. So quite by accident, you, you know, you became somewhat proficient um, on, on pedaling, you know. <laughs> And uh, even to this day, you know, I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll do these neighborhood rides with these these guys who work as bartenders and waiters, and I'm surprised at, at at how skilled they are on the bike. And I go, look, you've been riding lately? Nope, just still commuting on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> so that I mean, that's. But I guess to, to get back to the specifics of your your question, a lot of us felt like there was something, right? quote unquote that was capturing you know, the collective imagination of the people who were participating. And, you know, when you look back on it now and you think, okay, what was it that sparked this creative imagination of so many people that not only wanted to help develop the sport, but those who wanted to follow it, to, to embrace it, to consume it, to, to just allow it to devour their lives, you know, almost to a pathological basis. But I, I think that, there's a certain danger in romanticizing our history. <laughs> True. You know, because I mean, look at the look at the equipment we had. Look at the knowledge of training. Uh, you know, look at the the lack of financial resources. It was a struggle, and, and I mean, I did a lot of races that were just super dangerous. You know, blown through red lights. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, think about mass swim starts before 1983. You know, I mean, you you got a you got a decade of racing where, where you're sending off anywhere from from a hundred to to fifteen hundred people all at once. Bam, go, have a good time, don't drown. You know, when you just look around, especially as a lifeguard, you go, oh man, this is gnarly. <laughs> hey, you know, triathlon is not an individual sport. And talk about the core characters back then, the big four. Uh, the competitive camaraderie, like 1983, Scott Molina, uh, he said, uh, you can win this race uh, after he was having a bad day. Uh, Mark Allen, the grip of death back in 84. Uh, Go out there and get as close as you can because it matters. Um, and then in 85, Dave Scott. And yet, you know, I found out from Linda Buchanan back in the day, you had a pair of hand paddles at the pool and she used to swim in your lane. And on those hand paddles, it said, beat Dave Scott. So talking about 1985, Dave Scott in the uh, back of the van after he blew up and he said, uh, you can break the course record. Uh, you know, talk about the the camaraderie of the top, uh, the big four, that being you, Molina, the grip and the man. 
Well, each of those little vignettes uh, and those quotes that you offer come with a certain amount of backstory. But I, I, th I think the through line is that I was very fortunate to be in a select group of, th of three other individuals within the male population, of course, because, you know, the females had their own version of, of, of you know, of top performing at triathletes back then. Um, but you know, there was there was something ab about not only us, and then you know by some extension you could you could include Mike Pig, and you know you kind of go down the list, and you get the Paul Huddles and Jimmy Riccatellas, and you know and the all and the the, the the nearly big fours, and there are lots of journeymen that that are underappreciated in this sport. But you know to be included in that group, um, you know again I look back on on uh, one of the great fortunes. Of my life, because uh, not only were these um, uh, fantastic competitors and people that challenged me, to, you know, to, to up my own game, but they were—I um, won't say virtuous characters, but they had a level of, of grace uh, in their own way, separately, distinctly, but something that that all of us could never identify and we would rarely even come close to talking about although Melina and I have tried to at times uh, you know after after too much of of the wrong pharmaceutical agent um, <laughs> but but we have you know we we all respected each other um, and and we we came through it um, having having risen the bar so to speak whether or not we paid the price physiologically, because, you know, we all have our challenges now that are related to what we did then. Um, but, you know, the examples that, that you come up with um, where where Mark and Dave and, and Scott at some point in the heat of the battle, you know, talked to me when I happened to be in a position to win and they didn't and encouraged me, you know, to carry on that torch and to, you know, to, to create my own level of greatness uh, you know that says a lot about them as as characters, and so I am uh, again. I, I feel blessed to to be put in that bracket. Absolutely, well said. So moving on to the women, we have Julie Moss, who put the sport on the map. And in '82, February '82, you were the first to cross the line. You were the first athlete, male, female, anybody. You were it across the line, and yet at the end of the day, when sunset midnight happened. Julie Moss was sort of the takeaway. She was the story. She sort of uh, drew some attention away from the podium. Um, talk about that, uh, 82, February, and uh, how it was like to win and get it right after third and 81, and uh, what it was like to have to share the uh, attention with uh, someone like Julie and uh, what she's been like. Well, first of all, you know, I've, I've never felt jilted by Julie's accomplishment <laughs> at all. Um, and nor should I, because what her performance did was elevate the stature of the sport, you know, into the mass popular culture that that allowed me and others, you know, Mark, Dave, um, everybody, every every professional male and female in the sport, you know, to, to have the opportunity to actually make a living at it for a while. Um, and you also have to remember that nobody really knew the significance of Julie's crawl, nobody. A handful of people did. But, but you know, the masses didn't know it until weeks, if not months later, 
when the story began to become mediated, right? And she went on Johnny Carson and the, the producer uh, of the, sh- the ABC Wide World of Sports show at the time, Bryce Weissman, who, interesting backstory here, uh, I'm sitting on the curb with Tom Warren at, yeah, at the finish line, uh, listening to these two people in a small trailer right next to the finish line uh, scream at each other. And, and mostly it's Bryce Weissman, who, bless his heart, is now dead, um, screaming at Valerie Silk because he allowed a secondary camera unit to be on, on the course. This is, of course, um, uh, Rodney Jacob and his freewheeling crew from Aspen, Colorado, who came up with a fantastic little documentary about the 82, February 82 event. But Bryce is screaming at Valerie and he's threatening to sue her. And, and Warren and I are going like, man, there's some shit going down in the trailer. Someone's yelling at Valerie. And while they, while they yelled at each other, somebody from the crew knocked on the door and said, hey, hey guys, you should come out, man. There's something going on at the finish line. There's this chick that's walking, crawling across the finish line. And it's really exciting. And, and to this day, Valerie admits that she missed that. And so Tom Warren and I sort of walked over and watched this thing, you know, poking our head, heads between the people and thought, oh, wow, that hurts. That does not look good. I would not want to be crawling right now because it's getting dark and man, it looks like her knees are bloody. And I feel sorry for that gal, man. Somebody help her out. So, um, but, but we, were, we were sort of, you know, distantly enamored with her performance. And then, of course, knew, you know, began to learn the backstory later on. And we thought, all right, this is, this is going to be good because ABC's going to spin this huge. And, and of course, they spun it huge. Uh, you know, I mean, Bryce never sued. Uh, you know, was given all these accolades for having produced one of the, the greatest sports um, moments uh, in in history, and uh, and he didn't even see it. <laughs> one of the top top, top five in ABC Wide World of Sports, Julie Moss. <laughs> yeah, go figure. Where would we be at without lovely Julie? All right, here's another quote: "The ideal of becoming an Ironman is not unlike any addiction to something we submit to, but it mostly comes down to our desire for love." to be more than simply accepted. Heroes are loved. In somebody's eyes, an Ironman finisher is always heroic. Somehow, we carve out the cost and the pain and the suffering and stand taller after the sprint down Lee Drive. And we do. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do remember that. Um, some piece I wrote about going back to the Ironman. I think that might have been my attempt to explain the big why. You know, wh- you know why is it that 25,000 people try and get into an event that, as Scott Molina quite eloquently said at one point, uh, is a really tough way to spend a long, hot day. So, so there is something about accomplishment. There is there's also something about um, proving the mythology true. We follow these media-generated dreams that come from someplace, and oftentimes the, the, um, they come from a more authentic moment or moments that are seen, discovered, talked about, perhaps distilled slowly down through history as they used to be in a, you know, a, a pre-data sphere world. And as those myths come to us and, and we relate them to ourselves and we, and we re, uh, compare what we hoped to achieve earlier in our lives with what we have achieved at a certain point and that there's a disparity between, you know, this desire and this accomplishment, and, and we start to identify different personal challenges 
that might even that score. Oftentimes, we look for safe, controlled, personal challenges. Um, and some of those um, are found in, say, uh, devious behaviors, uh, risky kind of personal activities. But that sort of puts us on the edge of, of either going to jail or getting addicted. And so we look to sport. Yeah, here we go. I, I, I can accomplish those kinds of things by finding a personal challenge. And, and what is it specifically that moves my needle that far? Is it a marathon, 5K walk, you know, two, two block or two laps around the block? Um, or is it the Ironman World Championship? Right? And there you go. So lots of people are enamored by the myth. And once they accomplish that, you know, they're standing there at the end going like, man, my, my life will be different because I, I can go to a cocktail party and I can look at, you know, some guy bragging about his, you know, the size of his 401k. And I don't have to say anything, but in the back of my mind, and I can go, look, yeah, but you got a little belly hanging out over there. And, um, you know, I finished the hardest race on the planet. So how's your night working out for you, bro? Let's talk about equipment, endemic equipment. You were, uh, you know, one of the MOs was to always have uh, the cutting edge uh, helpers, sponsors. Uh, companies wanted you to have their newest equipment because they knew if you influenced others, uh, they'd end up with uh, sales. So... New helmet design. Uh, you were the, one of the first ones to use aero bars after Brad Kearns. Uh, you had your own clothing line, the great Tinley line. I know in the 90s when I was wearing your stuff, I was cool, you know, at least for that very moment. Uh, tell us about the state of triathlon tech back then in like 85. And looking back, uh, do you see yourself uh, as an innovator? And did any of the equipment make you go faster? Or, you know, what was it like back then with equipment? Um, so I don't, I don't think I was a true innovator. I would give that nod to the people behind the inventions themselves. Um, I was a conduit for some really amazing and smart uh, forward thinkers. You know, I mean, there's Jim Gennard of Oakley. There's Jim Gentis of Giro Helmets, Brian Maxwell and Jenny Maxwell of Power Bar. Um, you know, the great late Steve Head, Head Wheels. Um, gosh, I could go on and on and on. Um, Richard Bryan. Speedplay pedals, you know, the turbo trainer, the skid lid helmet. Um, I'm leaving people out, you know, um, Johnny Cobb in retailing. And there were just some really, really good people who had some fantastic ideas, you know. Um, Roger Sanders and Steve and Bill Goldfuss from Aerolite Pedals coming to me like, hey, we've got these pedals that were developed in Disneyland because they're trying to come up with a bearingless uh, spin system. You want to try these pedals? They only weigh like four grams. Okay. So, so I, I, I got that reputation of, of w being willing to experiment with things. And I, you know, I broke a lot of things, but, I, you know, I raced on a, on a 13 and a half pound bike back when the average weight was 21 and a half pounds. Um, so I, 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 I wasn't, I was just a messenger for a lot of great people who were, who were willing to, to do amazing things. Um, and, and it was the wild, wild west. You know, there were there were no structures. There was no very little rules. And these were people who had been used to working uh, under the confines of traditional cycling. And, uh, you know, UCI and the American cycling groups, uh, you know, uh, over legislation of what you could and could not do with your bikes. And multisport comes along and you, and you have people who have the means and they have a little bit of discretionary income. 
you know, people like Gary Hooker, you know, it's going, okay, you know, I can build you a bike that's, that it's it, in the wind tunnel is slippier than, than anything anybody's even thought about. And it's going to cost you, you know, back in the day, $2,500. No problem. Here's my credit card. I want it in red. I need it Thursday. End of story. So it was a kind of perfect storm, you know, of economy, of experimentation, of technology, and of personalities willing to combine those. You mentioned a lot of names. Um, Ron Smith, uh, just quick, uh, what do you think about the legend Ron Smith, the go-to guy back in the day uh, when there wasn't, uh, you know, coaching, et cetera? Right. Your, your listeners aren't going to see this, but I'm, I'm just going to turn the camera there on a picture of my hero. There he is. The great Ron Smith. Uh, I mean, even even to this day, I mean, there's not a lot of um, I've seen a lot of people die, you know, I mean, working as a firefighter, paramedic and um, lifeguard and stuff. But uh, there's not a lot of names that choke me up. You know, we talk about them uh, and Ron is one of them still. Um, but, yeah, you know, just. Uh, symbolic of, of of many of the early participants in the sport, you know, thoughtful, innovative, hardworking, hard challenging, um, you know, just no holds barred, take no shit kind of people, men and women, um, who who just embraced this concept of, of more than one sport and thought, okay, there we're onto something. You know, we're not so cerebral and eloquent to be able to define it, but damn, it feels pretty good when we can all come together and do these kinds of events. Um, so, so Ron was, um, yeah, he's at the top of my list when it, when it comes to foundational people in the sport. And, you know, and say nothing about what, he, you know, what he did as a, under, as a Navy SEAL and, you know, Ironman winner in his age group and all that stuff, so. That's a great picture of him on bike check back in February of 82, checking in Julie Moss's bike. You know, he was there yeah. as a volunteer and then he raced that next day. Gordon Haller, real quick. What do you think of Gordon? Yeah. Um, Gordon's a good guy because he, he's kind of quiet, understudied, under-celebrated for sure. Um, you know, I think, I think the best way to really understand Gordon and his contributions is, you know, to go back and read Barry McDermott's piece from May 4th, 1979 in Sports Illustrated uh, about how he handled um, the fact that he was finishing, you know, second to Tom Warren um, in 79 and, and, and what he had able to, was able to do beating John Dunbar in the first Ironman in 78. Just kind of, a, you know, quiet, cerebral, hardworking, you know, Navy guy. Um, yeah. Drove a taxi, wouldn't date a woman who smoked, just completely true to his passion for fitness. I mean, down to the nth degree. And the fact that he was able to sustain that, even to this day, you know, in his, his late 60s, it's just, it's amazing um, that somebody hasn't done a documentary on, on Gordon Haller. <laughs> Other Ironman champion, Tom Warren, Tugs. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, again, like Ron Smith and, uh, and others, it's really it's hard to to say enough about the contributions of, of these people, um, what they were, what they did, um, how they approached the sport, um, how different they were as champions in the mid seventies and even the early eighties than the champions are now. You know, and again, this is not to disparage the champions now, but but there there was no playbook back then you know i mean guys like tom warren just flying by the seat of his pants literally 
you know, setting up a wind trainer on his bike in the sauna, you know, just do, doing, uh, erring on the side of overtraining to such a degree that as an exercise physiologist, you know, even as a freshman exercise phys student now, you would look at, you know, at, at what he and, and even myself and Melina and others did, and uh, you'd shake your head like, were, were, were you that stupid? <laughs> and I, I guess our reply would be, no, but... But we were just, we were kids. But no, we weren't kids. Lauren was older. We were just, you know, we were moving. You know, uh, there was a shape shifting that, that the, the sport catalyzed in us and, and it blinded us to the rationality of training. Um, and, and Warren was our ringleader because he would do wild stuff, you know, just for the sake of, of you know, he'd, he'd run to Mexico take the train back, you know, it's only, maybe it's only a 38 mile run from his house down to Tijuana and then take the trolley back and he would only do it because he could be standing at the bar, to, you know, that night and some go, so what'd you do today? I went for a short run. Oh, where'd you go? Because I, you know, I went, uh, I, I went, you know, did the park loop twice and he goes, I, I, wrote, I ran to Mexico. <laughs> Anyways. What's different in the sport now? Maybe three things, but then what stays the same? Of course, we all swim, bike, run, have fun, cross the finish line. But, you know, what's different and yet what stays the same? Um, I mean, what, what's different is the, you know, the level of pedagogy. You know, I mean, how, how we learn. It's so much easier now. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I am a huge fan of, of technology and in, in, in applying uh, you know, the kinds of biomarkers and, and whatnot that are available to, to uh, reduce or even eliminate, you know, some of the mistakes that we made. So, so that's a big one um, that, that is different. What is the same, you know, as you said, it's, it's, it's a quest story. You know, it's, it's, an, it's an ancient mythic narrative, um, you know, that's very biblical at its roots. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking to do something um, that establishes us separate from the pack, from the tribe. You know, we, we all want to be shamans in one way. Um, we all want to stand out. You know, not that we all want to, like, you know, risk our health on a Julie Moss basis. But, you know, if we can do it in a controlled environment and it's safe and if we screw up, we're not going to end up, you know, in a Turkish prison. Um, then we're willing to take that risk. So, so I, I think you know the, the, the main thing that, that is similar for me is is that we're we're all trying to stand out and do something different and substantial. Something different. That's technology and the future of triathlon. Talk about technology and that you know you ha had the clothing line. There really wasn't a lot of triathlon clothing. There were some companies that came in, went, and tried it for a season or two. But uh, you had the Tinley clothing line and how that became how you ended up selling it, but also the sponsorship of athletes in one particular man. But what was that like? Well, most of the, most of the credit for the development of, of uh, Tinley Performance Wear, which in the beginning was called Perfection Sport Fashions, uh, goes to Jim Riley. Um, you know, Jim, a, a, a super creative, uh, you know, really great salesman, really thoughtful guy, good athlete. And he knew Ironman. He had competed and he was a Kiwi working for a, another clothing company. And he had this concept that, that there should be uh, a product that is both functional and fashionable. 
And so, you know, he, he came up with this concept of a, uh, a soft hand India cotton running shirt in a Hawaiian print. He and I had kind of been training partners of sorts, and he, he pitched me on the idea, and I said, yeah, okay, I, but I want to be a partner because that is so cool. Um, and then along the way, you know, we, we picked up some other additional people who helped us. I mean, Jeffrey Essekow, um, you know, who to this day remains, uh, you know, one of our closest connections with Challenge Athlete Foundation. But, but the, the Tenley Performance Wear was, you know, it was our attempt to, to find a niche uh, that hadn't been fulfilled to use multi-sport as, as a primary platform or, or, or demographic that we were pointed towards. Um, and, and, you know, and we spent most of what we could have made um, sponsoring other athletes, you know, and we gave away so much shit. Oh, my God. We, one year we gave away something like uh, $300,000 in product. And I know, and it, after tax dollars, we made about $150,000 net. And we're going like, wow, $300,000 in stuff, you know, at wholesale base cost. Um, so, so a lot of people got a lot of free stuff, um, and, and I'm still very happy about that because people come back to me now today. I'm like, you know what? You sent me five pair of shorts, and I only asked for one. And I'm like, dude, where's the other four, man? Send them back. Are they the same size as me? I could use them right now. <laughs> I still have one pair. One pair. <laughs> I keep them in circulation. What size? I, extra large. Uh, I, I oh. Yeah, I've had to sew up a few uh, times uh, as well. Um, yeah. You know, that was the beautiful thing. You had Russell Moore, Kerry Poole, Riley was your rep, Selen. And uh, what a crew of people. The inflatable Tinley out in front of the King Kamehameha. Uh, that was always classic. Okay, here's another quote. Why the hell would well over a million people around the world spend thousands of hours and dollars jeopardizing jobs, marriages, essential health, and well-being, all in preparation for a day of suffering? Our triathlons and endurance sports, a new kind of religion. What are your thoughts on that? Existential angst. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, to think about it, um, again, I, I don't have a specific answer, and I've, I, I've asked this question privately and publicly for a long, long time, but perhaps it has something to do with, with the fact that up until the pandemic, I, uh, life had gotten pretty easy from a physical standpoint. You know, we don't have to go to the grocery store. Right? You just pick up Vons.com. Uh, you know, we, we can accomplish most of what we need to do without even having to stroll around the block. And yet, you know, we as humans have this innate desire to move, to, to explore and define and, and become who we are through our physical movement. And if we don't get it through our occupation or, or through our, our, our need to sort of, you know, grow crops and produce livestock, then electively we have to seek and find those physical challenges. Again, it's a very first world, 21st century problem, right? There's a lot of emerging countries that are going like, fuck you, Tinley, really? Seriously? I'm still trying to milk my cow and, and find food for my, you know, for my kids. So you've been a, an, uh, an assistant janitor, an EMT, an ocean lifeguard, professional athlete, and you're currently a uh, doctor uh, of letter and a lecturer at universe of San Diego State University and author, multi-books. What is job satisfaction to you? I don't know, Eric. Um, sometimes um, other people define me better than I define myself, which is very, very okay with me. <laughs> um, 
Somebody once told me that that uh, I, I was cursed with a warrior's heart. And I was like, all right, well, what's that mean? He says, you have the constant need to be needed. <laughs> he goes, look at all the stuff you've chosen. You know, you're an inspirational professional athlete. You're a firefighter, paramedic. You're still a lifeguard. You're a teacher who, who wants to have office hours, you know, all day long so that people can come in and hang out. Um, and <clears throat> I think to a certain extent, uh, they were correct. Um, you know, I mean, I am in a position where um, my innate behavioral trait um, feels better when I know that I can't sleep the whole day and no, and someone won't miss me. <laughs> so, so I've tried to sort of structure my life where, um, you know, I, I wake up and I go, okay, if I don't go to work today, someone's going to be pissed, and and that makes me feel good that 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 I'm I'm needed in some way, even if it's a, a small thing. Sure, understood. We all want to be needed and loved. So you mentioned you moved down to San Diego when you were in your, you know, after high school. And um, but let's talk about prior to that, uh, where you grew up, your childhood uh, relationship uh, with mom, dad, family and uh, going to Lake Lopez and other places out there in uh, central California. And then, unfortunately, you know, your dad passed at 15. And uh, what effect did that have on you? Because, you know, often on the podium when you're up there, you know, it would have been nice to look out and see him. But you knew he was looking from uh, up above. What was it like growing up and all that? So I grew up in North Orange County. Uh, big, big Irish Catholic family. Um, eight kids. Um, you know, father died when I was 15. I was the oldest boy, second oldest. Um, pretty much had to get a job the next day. My sister and I, you know, earning some money, um, did not do a good job as the, um, you know, the oldest male amongst uh, uh, seven other siblings. Somehow got through that structure. Um, but, but yeah, just had, had these wonderful uh, role models in both my parents who, uh, who were completely, uh, to their core, not only altruistic, but egalitarian in the world of sports, my dad, you know, when, when we would, when we go to play sports across the street at the at the local junior high, anybody that showed up was given a position. Didn't matter which what sport it was, because we played sports by season back then, right? In the fall, you threw the football around. In the spring, it was bat. It was uh, a little bit of basketball, and then of course, you know, come April, April through August, it was baseball, baseball, baseball. Sure. So he always had a, he always had a place. Uh, for anybody, whether they're five years old or you know, or, or fifteen or whatever, so their um, their mentorship of of myself and my other siblings uh, in the world of sports um, was huge. It was a big thing. Um, and then when he passed, uh, and you know, I was sort of you know, forced to, to be the <laughs> the accidental accidental patriarch of the family, and you know, did not do a good job. You know, by seventeen, I'm like, sorry, mom. Uh, you know, I'm out of here. You know, I'm going to San Diego. I had to figure my shit out and put myself through college. Um, and, I, you know, and basically because I had an older sister who understood uh, the world of um, financial aid, uh, you know, co coached me um, so that, uh, you know, I'm filing my own tax return at 15, uh, lying about my address and getting financial aid at San Diego State <laughs> at, at 19, going like, wow. I just got $1,500 for the whole year. I'm going to go buy a new A-Track stereo, buy the boys around, 
And maybe if there's anything left, I'll buy a book for school. I mean, king of the world. King of the world. No doubt. Okay. I'm going to fire a few questions off and we'll call it a wrap. Do you still travel with tortillas? I heard you travel with tortillas and when you're out of tortillas, it's time to return home. Is that true? It's a good myth. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to say yes, just because everybody should travel with tortillas. And don't get the kind with a whole bunch of... If you get the kind with too many preservatives, it's going to throw off your schedule by, by days. Yeah, no doubt. You go with Trader Joe's, all natural. Okay, what's your favorite mantra or saying? I don't know. I mean, I'm a big fan, fan of Shawshank Redemption and, you know, that sort of get busy living or get busy dying. Um, that's, that, that's a good line. Uh, now, as a grandfather, uh, I'm going to guess your favorite sound is uh, the sound of your grandchild. But I'll ask you anyways. What's your favorite sound? Any any song by Jackson Brown. There you go. Or, you know, the late, great. Who am I going to say? Guess. Don't let us get sick. Don't let us get old. Warren Zevon. I, w- I mean, I feel bad about all the people who passed away from COVID-19. But when John Prine passed away... Um, just because, you know, my, my band and I play a lot of a lot of John Prine, um, we, we were we were affected. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm a singer songwriter at heart. So Awesome. What is the first thing you want to do when COVID goes away? I kind of miss the hugs. I mean, just random people who, who you wouldn't connect with and, you know, people who are like kind of one of these awkward grandma hugs. And yet you hug them anyways. And it's a bit of an icebreaker or it just changes the relationship for the next half hour or the next decade. Um, so I don't know when it's OK. Um, I'm going to be just like walking up to people on the street and say, hey, you don't know me, but can I just hug you? <laughs> and maybe I think I was thinking about doing it in advance. I was thinking about getting a couple of shower curtains, you know, from, from Home Depot and just walking up to people and say, hey, can you put the shower curtain on? I'll put the shower curtain on. And we're just going to hug, right? Are you okay with that? I'm not going to record it or anything. It's not going to be a social media deal. I, I just want to feel a kind of, you know, a, a, some semblance of human touch, even though it's through like four layers of plastic. Yep, I agree. All right. Uh, having dinner tonight, if you could, anyone living or not living, who would you like to have one-on-one dinner with tonight? Uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, Captain Cook, um, Donald Trump. I want Trump there just, I, I don't know why, just because, yeah. Um, actually, I take that back. No, he's not invited. Um, JFK. <laughs> yes, my homeboy. Uh, Ron Smith, uh, my mom, who passed away in January, bless her heart. Um, and we were all there, all eight of the kids, you know, on her side. Um, yeah, and, you know. One of those big parties. I mean, you know, in, in my will, and don't don't tell this to my wife, but but in my will, you know, I've, I've got this um, this fat bonus for this big party. So hopefully, hopefully, I don't die before the the, the pandemic is is figured out, so that um, you know we, we can we can rent the Coliseum and <laughs> everyone can just get wasted on my own behalf. There you go. Awesome. As triathletes, finish this sentence. As triathletes, we should always remember to dream. Yeah, I mean, I, regardless if you, even if your dream morphs into a nightmare, it's important to experience those feelings um, and decide whether or not you know you're you're on task with what you're trying to accomplish. And like we, you know, we, we all we all don't go down cul-de-sacs and 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 get a skew of of what we're trying to achieve, but it's the process, man, the journey, which sounds cliche, but you know, I, I still think there's a certain amount of truth to to that quest for you know, trying to get where we want to be. Great. 
As humans, we should always remember too. <laughs> we ain't that bitching. <laughs> there will always be somebody greater and lesser than ourselves. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can remember winning events and going to awards and seeing people around and actually thinking that I was, you know, slightly different world than they were. And being really troubled with that idea because I, it felt like I was being narcissistic, which I was. Um, and, and I, you know, even now it's a, it's a kind of nightmare for me. Like the, I, I went through that period where I thought I was better than the other capital O. Right. And, and I wasn't, um, so, you know, that's sort of uh, a realistic empathy, um, you know, is something that we are born with or can it be trained? And if it can be trained, then, man, let's let's get busy trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to get that back in us. Here's your vaccine, right? Yeah. Give me some vitamin E, empathy. Well said. Last question, and we're going to call it a wrap. In 92, I saw you pushing your children down Ali'i Drive, going by the uh, ABC store, and I saw Virginia with you. And uh, let's talk about her. She's been with you all those years, uh, the patron saint, the president of the Challenge Athlete Foundation, uh, a woman that I just love like a younger sister. And uh, just uh, let's close with uh, VT. Yeah, you know, I just, I, I guess I got lucky. You know, I mean... Um, yeah, I got lucky. It's nothing, nothing that I did right or wrong. It's like, all right, well, you know, I, I met the right person. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, it's, it ain't sugar and spice and everything's nice, right? You know, there's always effort, work. You can you try and um, figure out your differences. And as people evolve and change, um, you can either try and evolve with them or again them. And, uh, you know, we've made a pretty tough time of, of evolving together. Um, you know, we've got two fantastic kids, a grandchild, um, a life together, and, and that history matters. Um, and again, you know, it's, there's, there's always challenges along the way, but, but you know, it, challenges are good. You know, as long as there's transparency and authenticity and, and effort, um, and openness, you know, and people talk like, okay, how did, how did you stay married? It's like, I don't know. I guess I'd stayed open. Well said. I have learned so much from you, Scott. Uh, I've known you for years. I thank you for your time today. Uh, the diversity uh, to have what you have in your toolbox. Uh, so many people in our sport are single purpose, all about themselves, narcissistic, and uh, the balance you have from business to author to announcer for ESPN, ABC back in the day, uh, the people lives that you've affected. Uh, thank you so much for your time today and what you've done for our sport. Yeah, th thank you guys, man. What you're doing is fantastic. Um, and, you know, and just a, a quick shout out to the Ironman Foundation and, and their recent efforts to give back to uh, the city and the people of Kailua Kona, um, you know, Ironman, way to go, way to go. You're doing really, really good things uh, with those programs that are helping a lot of people who are hurting in Kona. And, you know, and let's let's not forget that, you know, without that city and without that place and those people, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So, you know, there's a lot of unsung folks 
hanging out in Kona with small businesses and, you know, who have done a shitload for, for all of us connected with Ironman over the past 40 years. So um, thank you to all you. And, um, you know, thanks Ironman for, for, and, and Hoka, right. For, for, for being a part of that, uh, uh, those efforts. So you guys are doing good things. Love you. Well, Chelsea, what did you think of that one? What a shot at history. I had no idea about some of that early ragtag, Wild West, anything goes. You know, our sport really isn't that old. And so it's so interesting to hear about that, you know, not so distant past of those historic first years. Yeah, things are pretty set up now into our fourth decade, but the history of the forming early distances and the finishing results, they're often recorded. But the passion and the classic personalities of those that we discussed in those early years are often forgotten. The Ron Smiths and the legends like that. So I'm, I'm really glad we had time to remember them. Absolutely. I think, you know, part of moving the sport forward is also reflecting on the incredible legacy of the athletes that have come before us. Yep, absolutely. So I hope that people were educated, inspired, and, you know, wanting more. I certainly was. I loved hearing your conversation with Scott. And my favorite part, I think, was when he gave us his first hand account of watching Julie Moss crawl across the finish line. You know, I've heard it from Julie and I've seen the footage, but to hear that firsthand description of someone who could literally, you know, see the sweat like dropping down her face, you know, was a whole nother experience. Yeah, that's the beauty of ST, such a well-rounded renaissance in the sense, uh, man, um, just amazing rare content. And I've spent hundreds of hours with him, heard the stories, and I've never heard that particular one from his perspective. So that was great. In our next episode, we talk to a true legend of motorsport, Tony Kanaan, Indy 500 winner and up-and-coming triathlete. Tony can really tell a story, none of which can top his own life story, which he shares. That's on the next Chelsea and Eric show. Please subscribe to the Chelsea and Eric show. Brought to you by Hoka One One and Iron Man.